everyone, and welcome to Chick Chat, the Baby Chick Podcast. I'm your host, Nina Spears, the Baby Chick, and today I'm here with Poonam DeSorms, a speech-language pathologist with over 15 years' experience, as well as a faculty clinical instructor in the School of Communication Sciences and Disorders at the University of Central Florida. Her experience includes working in a private, multidisciplinary clinic, a special needs school for autism, and private practice. Poonam's areas of experience are augmentative and alternative communication, autism spectrum disorders, speech language therapy, including early intervention. She's the real deal, and we're thrilled to have her on our podcast with us today. Today's topic is all about the different ways children learn and what we parents need to know and look for when it comes to our children's learning. Poonam has seen and has worked with so many families and is going to be giving us her tips and expert knowledge. I can't wait to dive in. Welcome, Poonam. Hi, Poonam. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Yes. You know, I did give a brief introduction at the beginning of the episode. But for our listeners, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? We'd love to learn more. Absolutely. Well, I'm a speech language pathologist, and I have been working with children with pediatrics for most of my career. And I started out, as you probably mentioned, in a multidisciplinary clinic here in Florida, and also have worked at a school for autism, learned so much there from the teachers and from the families. And most recently, I'm working with graduate students, which is really great because I get to share all of the things that I've learned and my passion for the profession with up-and-coming speech-language pathologists at the University of Central Florida. That is amazing. And what you do has such a special place in my heart because I have a twin brother who has autism. And I remember as a child having to go in, you know, every week, several times a week for his speech therapy appointments. And so, yes, I mean, I have just really good memories of the work that you all do. So thank you for your work. It's just such a wonderful thing. So today's topic I had mentioned again before, is that we really want to know the different ways children learn and what us parents really need to know and look for when it comes to our children's learning. So can you break it down for us? What are the different ways that children learn? You know, this is a great question. And my first experience working at a multidisciplinary clinic, and, and all that means is it was an outpatient therapy clinic for children where we worked with physical therapists, occupational therapists, and us speech therapists there. And this really created a foundation for me for understanding how children learn and how people learn. And I think the thing that stood out to me the most is what we call AVK or VAK auditory, visual, and kinesthetic learning. Sometimes you'll even have a T put on there. So it might be V-A-K-T. So auditory, visual, kinesthetic, and tactile learning. And what that means, you know, we probably all hear, we all take input in in different ways from our environment and from within ourselves as well. So auditory, obviously, we learn from hearing, and that ties really strongly into speech and language, of course, but we're also visual learners. I think that has come to light a lot more in recent years with teaching and education. And we're kinesthetic, which is movement-based and tactile. So 
we're gaining information through all of those modes. And really, if you think about it, through our senses, and we're multidisciplinary in our intake of the world, and we're multisensory. So I think those are some of the ways that we learn that are really important and tie into development for children. That's awesome. So you obviously working with so many kids, do you ask your parents, hey, or the parents that, you know, of the children that you're seeing, hey, do you know how your children learns best? Or what are the things that you're looking for when you're working with a child to determine the way that they're learning the best so that us parents, we know what we need to be looking for? So do you have any tips on that? Yeah, sure. And I think sometimes it's hard to know as a parent, right? How is my child learning? Like you become a parent, especially if it's your first time and you're just trying to keep a little human alive, right? Your job is to make sure that they're fed and make sure that they have shelter and eat, sleep, poop is what your everyday life is to start, right? So sometimes it can be hard to ask those questions or be able to answer those questions from therapist to a parent. So what I usually will just say is to describe your kiddo. What are they interested in? And let's look at their sensory integration. So do they eat a variety of foods, for example? So that helps us learn about textures and tactile. So if a child maybe is gagging or if they touch something in the environment, even a food item, and they kind of grimace and have an odd reaction, that might mean that there's something going on with that. Or maybe they like to touch things a lot. So I'm not sure the experience that you had even with your brother, but a lot of times tactile defensiveness or tactile seeking, you might notice with that population too, and and all kids. So I might ask them that. As far as speech and language, which is my area and my passion, that auditory is a really, really big deal. So we learn language first by hearing. And there's a study, a 1995 study by Hart and Riley that, that talks about how children hear 26 million words between birth and four years old. And so, yes, so amazing. So we're constantly taking in that input. And for that first year, your language development is occurring really just by listening to the language models all around you, the language rich environment around you. And so I might be asking a parent, when you speak to your child or they hear noises, are they localizing to that sound? And what that means is, do they turn to the sound? in the environment? Do they turn to your speech? Do they make facial expressions? How are they reacting to that auditory information? As far as some of the others of those AVK, visually, vision is really important too to development, of course. So we know at first children are being able to see things that are more black and white and red and then increase. So how are they reacting to that, especially with the reading books. You know, we read a lot when children are young and throughout their life, and hopefully they continue that on. So how are they reacting to the stimuli in the book and that tactile? So those are some of the things that that we might ask, ask them. And we know that receiving this input in positive ways can really reduce stress for children. There's a study a 2009 study that looked at vestibular input, movement input, and it reduced stress in infants. So we know all of those things are important and uh, really tie together. That is so cool. And people probably don't think, what is my infant so stressed about? But they absolutely can be. (laughs) Those Those little guys, they absolutely can be. So that's fascinating. It is, yes. 
there's a lot going on with children, right? (laughs) (laughs) I believe it. So are there certain things that you recommend we do once we've discovered like, okay, I'm recognizing, yes, that my child is super tactile or actually does not want to touch anything, loves it when I sing, or whenever they kind of discovered that maybe their child prefers a certain learning method. Are there certain things that we can do to to strengthen that, to build their language, et cetera? Absolutely. So, I mean, we always want to look at things as what is a strength and a positive and maybe what is an area of difficulty. So, of course, if we're noticing that your child is really reacting to a certain sound in the environment, whether it's you singing or the birds chirping or whatever it may be, to engage them in that moment, we can get really busy with what we're doing and trying to just get their needs met, where sometimes we might not take that moment and realize that that's a language-rich moment and a learning-rich moment. So where you're narrating, yes, I heard that sound. Did you hear that too? When the baby searches around for that bird noise when you're outside, that's a bird. So just narrating that. Sometimes it feels silly to do those things, but we know for language that Children are just absorbing, like we said, for that first year before they maybe even say a word and and for those first few months before they're even cooing. And so if we can add language to those environmental experiences, that is how they can start learning to use language. As far as things that they might not like, that tactile defensiveness that we're talking about, you know, you don't want to totally steer away from all of those experiences then because that can exacerbate those issues, but you also don't want to create a negative environment. So it's kind of a balance. You know, if my son, for example, my my son's nine years old now, but I remember when he was younger that he wasn't so into the messy crafts and getting super dirty. And so I kind of tried to encourage those things if I was cooking in the kitchen and letting him touch things and get messy, or if we were outside, letting him get messy and kind of showing him that if I touched this, it was okay and I did it, and then maybe offering that to him. And even if that meant I put some dirt in my hand and he touched it just with his finger or or smelled it or put his face close to it. So kind of encouraging those experiences in a safe environment with you right there. I love that. And us parents, we are the safe place and to encourage like you just that visual that I got of you like holding dirt or whatever it is that if he's like, oh, that's dirty or messy or whatever he's not into showing, hey, mommy's doing this. Mommy's safe. Mommy's okay. And I can do this too. So I love that that analogy. That's that's awesome. So my next question is, what are like some important milestones that parents should really pay attention to? And at what age should children be reaching those certain milestones that you find super important? Oh, milestones. That's a hot topic, right? You go to the doctor (laughs) with your new baby and you just want to make sure that they're on the right charts and they're hitting those milestones. And so they are important. It is true. It is good for us to know what is kind of expected. But at the same time, each person, each child learns and grows so differently. And so you want to take all of that information with a grain of salt. So one resource that I always refer my friends and caregivers to is our national organization, the American Speech, Language, and Hearing Association, and that's ASHA. So 
I really like the resources that they have on there that are vetted when it comes to milestones for speech and language. And so that's asha.org. And if you are really concerned about when your child should be doing what, it's totally fine, I think, to go and do a search as long as you're using a vetted and accurate resource. And so on there, they talk about milestones for speech and for language. And for our area, when we say that, our field has kind of different areas to it, different sections, and one of them is language. And so language can involve those just learning through hearing somebody speak your language and then eventually saying words, expressive language, but also understanding through hearing, following directions, smiling, looking at something. So we're looking at two parts of language, that expressive, talking, or receptive, hearing, and understanding. So on ASHA.org, they have a lot of great information there about, let's say, birth to three months that they should hopefully be recognizing your voice. They should startle to sounds. Then we know they're reacting to that auditory input. And from the expressive side, maybe they're starting to coo once they get to two or three months and uh, smiling at people. And those things increase. So you can definitely look at those resources. The other area of when I said speech and language, is the speech side. So speech is looking more at how we say the sounds at our articulation. And so there's different normative data out there as well, also on ASHA and other locations about what sounds kids should be making when. So we can definitely look at those those milestones. But again, trust your instincts. That's what I say the most to the parents that I work with and whose children I work with is that more often than not, a parent, especially a mom, has an instinct about whether their child is developing in the typical manner or whether there might be something going on and they need a little extra help. I so agree. Intuition, you have to follow your gut. I love that. And thank you for that resource, asha.org, is it? or That's exactly right. A-S-H-A, asha.org. Fantastic. Okay, so now I'm curious, is there a common issue or problem that you see parents coming to you in your patients when it comes to speech therapy? Yes. And this goes back to kind of that development too. There, there's a couple of things. So one that I really wanted to make sure I point out was we've talked a lot about hearing and I am not an audiologist. I'm a speech language pathologist, as you know. But since we talked about so much how children are learning language first just by listening to to us speak in the models around them is we really need to look at their hearing and something that can really hinder language development are ear infections otitis media so we're looking at an ear infection as that inflammation in the middle ear and so if a child is experiencing a significant number of ear infections then they're not going to be hearing that language input from their parents and from their siblings and from their environment as they should, almost muffled, almost as if they're underwater. So that can really influence their ability to learn language and then say sounds correctly. So you always want to keep an eye out for that if you think that your child is exhibiting, um, pulling on their ear or something that 
makes you feel like there might be something going on, definitely going to your pediatrician and making sure there's not an ear infection going on. Ear infections are really, really common. And that doesn't mean that having one is going to influence or affect your child negatively in any way. They said 75% of children experience at least one episode of an ear infection by their third birthday. So perfectly common, perfectly normal. But out of those kids, some will have recurring ear infections, and that can definitely be something that needs to be looked at. One of the main reasons this is so common in children is that the tubes in our ears are more horizontal and have a harder time draining those fluids, you know, if we do have a cold or allergies. And so sometimes the fluid sits in there and that can cause more ear infections. So that's one main thing to look at. Usually when we are assessing a child, that will be one of the main questions we ask first. Have they had any chronic ear infections and have they had a hearing test? Because even if it's not ear infections, if there is a hearing impairment of any sort, that will affect their language oftentimes. That makes so much sense, but I never put those two together. (laughs) But you're right. I mean, and for people who are listening, obviously the common sign of maybe an ear infection is, you know, a fussier child and tugging on the ears. But I will say I have a two and a half year old son and I remember going into, I forget when, what appointment, but they checked his ears and he had a double ear infection, yet he never, he was a happy kid, never tugged on his ears. I had no idea that he had a double ear infection. (laughs) So I appreciate you saying that because even if your child isn't showing like the typical signs of having an ear infection, it still doesn't hurt to have that checked out if you are seeing some delays in their language or speech. So that's gold. I, yeah, I definitely appreciate that tip. Absolutely. No, it's true. Usually we think ear infection, they're, well, they don't have a fever, so they must not have an ear infection or they're not showing that pain. But really, even if there's no pain or fever, there's other signs that you can look for and there can be an ear infection as you found out. So inattentiveness, if they're misunderstanding things a lot, directions that might be when they're older and they're able to follow directions, unexplained irritability, are wanting things a little bit louder. So those are things to keep an eye on for sure. I think some of the other things, signs to look out for when it comes to speech and language or development difficulties or differences is how they're reacting to with their eye contact, with turn taking. So there is what we call pre-intentional and pre-symbolic learning and language. So light, a really well-known researcher in our field in 1997, she was talking about this and she called it the magic period. So before they're even talking, that magic period where they're showing intention and they're showing understanding. So intention where, you know, they're looking at you intently, they're reaching for something intently, and they're showing that they have a purpose, that they, they have a need or a want and a reaction. Those are important. And for symbolic, you know, language is really a set of symbols that we've all agreed upon in our society. We have decided that B-A-L-L, ball, represents this round toy that we play with. And so showing that they're understanding those symbols, maybe when they get to a little bit of an older age, right around one or so, that you can say ball and they might look towards the item and show that they understand it. So looking at that 
that hearing, looking at that eye contact and looking at you and looking at items and showing that attention and intention. Finally, I would also look at their gross and fine motor movement. You know, that can be a sign for development. A lot of times children are going to have If they're having some difficulties, it might be a global thing going on. There might be, especially with children with autism, there might be some gross motor issues, some balance issues or strength issues and fine motor, maybe some difficulty picking things up with their their little fingers or holding a spoon or holding a pencil. So I usually are asking about the whole child is kind of my go-to is I want to know about the whole child and then I'll zone in on that speech and language. I love that. And I'm sure all of those pieces of information are so helpful when treating them in therapy. So that's really cool for us to know ahead of time for any parents out there who are like, you know what, I'm feeling like something is off. My gut is telling me that I might need to talk to somebody to get a little bit more help for my child. These are really good things to look for. And I know that you're an advocate for early intervention. Can you kind of explain what that means and when early intervention, like what age the child should be around, you know, when when you're saying early intervention? Absolutely. So early intervention usually is targeted for birth, so zero to three years old. And some of that has to do with a lot of the resources that are in each state. So most states in the United States have some type of early intervention program where before age three, if any child is demonstrating difficulties in some of these developmental areas, so we're looking at speech and language, gross motor, fine motor, cognitive, if they're showing any difficulties in that, then they're eligible to receive services for free. And that is and almost all of our, across our nation, that you can receive that. And so early intervention just means getting intervention that's needed in early. And the reason that this is so important is that we know that so many neurotransmitters and connections are occurring in the brain, especially at these younger ages, and kids are so malleable that if we start providing those extra, that extra little help that a child might need early on, we can really jumpstart them getting to where they need to be. And when I say need to be, what I always try to look at is not necessarily that your child is doing exactly what that book or that chart says that they should do at that age, but that your child is making progress in and of themselves. So if I meet your child and they're not doing some of those things that they should be doing, we can get in there with our early intervention. And what I just want to see is that they're progressing in comparison to themselves. And I think this is important because when we're talking about children with special needs and and individuals with special needs going on, we get really caught up in what's normal and being normal and being typical. And really, what is that? I can tell you from knowing myself, None of us are normal, right? We yeah. all are quirky. We all have our we all have our things and we might be functioning completely well in our environment, but we might not like the taste or feel of something or loud sounds or whatever it may be. So we all have things we're dealing with. So I really try to just look at what early intervention can we give them to help them increase in comparison to themselves. So we know helping early before age three can make a big difference. And sometimes that can really help with then when we get to school age, we're kind of up to speed of where we need to be to be able to participate in preschool and kindergarten, those sorts of things. 
That's awesome. And I love that. I had no idea that potentially those services can be free to parents who are seeking that early intervention for their child. Is there a place that parents should go to or a resource that they can visit to get more information for potentially their state and and what's available for them? Yes, absolutely. Each state is different and their program is probably going to have a different name. So what I would suggest is really just looking up on ASHA.org. You can look up early intervention and get some links to your different resources in your state. And also you can, the power of Google is always there too. If you're looking up early intervention there, you're going to find some of those resources that might be might even be labeled as part A, part B sometimes, or child find. Those are some of the catchphrases you might notice for that. And in addition, we often think about our public schools for only when our child is ready for kindergarten or preschool. But a lot of those resources for early intervention can be found through your local county public school as well. And if your child is in need and they're zero to three years old, your local school system can also put you in touch with the organizations to help get that intervention in. I love that. That is so awesome. Thank you for those resources. That hopefully helps someone who's listening, who is looking for more information for their child. So, so cool. Okay, just a few more questions. (laughs) Are there certain language and speech activities that we can do at home with our kids that you tend to do frequently with, with your patients? Or yeah, is there anything that we can do as parents with our children to encourage their language? The number one thing that you can do is read to your child. That is the number one thing. Definitely, definitely read. We all hear it. Studies show children that are read to for a certain amount of time every day really can increase their development in general, their language development in general. And I know that the American Speech Language and Hearing Association has an initiative out right now, I think it's called 15 Minutes a Day, where they're really encouraging families to at least try to read to or with their child for 15 minutes a day. And that kind of is something that I think mothers and and parents can say, okay, that's something I can do. I can decide 15 minutes and that's something that I can focus on with all of the other things I have to do during the day. I love that. And that's achievable. 15 minutes is totally doable. But I will ask, because I mean, luckily my son loves it when we read to him, but I'm curious for the children who do not have the attention span for 15 minutes to listen to books. Are there any other things that parents can do to help them? Yes, definitely. Well, when it comes to that, and my experience, as has been yours too, with individuals who might be on the autism spectrum or other things going on, that sometimes being able to attend, you might have a a child that has special needs and you're trying to sit down for your 15 minutes and they're climbing on your head and running away and screaming and, and all sorts of things like that. So one thing I try to say is that sometimes your child might seem like they're not interested or not paying attention and to just keep it going because we can create that routine. So if they are running around the room, as long as, you know, they're being safe to continue, continue with that reading and maybe try to pick something that also incorporates those other ways of learning that AVK, that auditory, visual, and kinesthetic. So maybe a touch and feel book 
where then, you know, they can touch it and they can play with it so that it's a little more interesting and it's not just an auditory input and visual. Or maybe you even take a hard board book and you let them put shaving cream on it or waxy crayons and color on it as you're reading so that they're able to do something with their hands while they're playing with that. But beyond books, there's there are other things as well. I mean, puzzles are great and sometimes combining, again, those types of input are good. So maybe those musical puzzles where you put the puzzle piece in and then it makes the sound of maybe the car or the animal when you put it in. Those are those are really great. Crafts are awesome. Sometimes it's hard to sit down and have time to do that. So I always try to think of crafting in the context of what you're doing at home. So you're cooking. Cooking is one of the best crafts that you could do because you're measuring things and you're building things and your child can kind of play around. So maybe if you're making something, you give them a little bit of flour and they play around with it. And narrating what's going on whenever you're doing these play activities is really important and stimulates the language. So as they're looking at something and playing around with it, you're telling them, that's flour. It's white. How does it feel? It's messy, you know, using your adjectives and your nouns and verbs to describe what they're doing. I think also for kids with special needs, what worked really well for me was the movement. So I might have a child I'm working with who does not want to sit and do tabletop speech therapy. That's boring to them. They want to be moving their bodies, seeking movement, and they don't have a lot of control yet, maybe over in their sensory input. And so I might actually have them, one of my go-tos was spinning in an office chair, believe it or not. (laughs) That's so great. Yeah. Getting them on their side and spinning in an office chair. And maybe I stopped the office chair and that was an opportunity for them to use their language and say go or more or please or spin. And then I would spin them again and I would change directions and input language with that. So That was really highly motivating, you know, maybe on the playground, on a swing, things like that. Get them moving and incorporate language into that. This is great. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so my last question for you, you've already given us such a great resource going to ASHA, A-S-H-A dot org. Are there any other resources or products that you've said like puzzles and books? And I love that you said like tactile books all with, you know, different textures on there. Are there any other products or resources that you recommend us parents to check out and look into to help with our children's speech and language? Absolutely. So beyond ASHA, there's another site that I find really helpful called identifythesigns.org. So that's a great resource too, because it can kind of highlight maybe if we think something might be going on where development is slower in some areas or different in some areas, and that can help you identify the signs of what your child should be striving for and you should be trying to help them with. I think in this day and age of technology, and right now we're actually dealing with a COVID-19 health emergency where we're trying to work from home and teach our kids from home and inevitably our kids are on technology more, which can be okay because there's a lot of great apps out there for social skills. For special needs, there's some called I Help Autism. They have some really, really great apps out there that can work on some functional language, and social skills. So I would definitely say looking for those educational apps. Also for reading, if they are maybe not into reading a book, 
but they're into technology, maybe use that. So Epic is a great resource for books online. It's an Epic with an exclamation point. And for special needs, there is one called Tar Heel Reader, T-A-R-H-E-E-L.org. What I really like about Tar Heel Reader is that it's books that people have made, therapists and, and others, that are not so babyish. So maybe you're working with somebody that has some delays in their development, but they want you want to show them a book that's interactive, that's more age appropriate, you might find that on Tar Hill Reader. So these are interactive online books that actually read the text out loud. And you can go through those. So I would say searching for those those apps. And lastly, as I mentioned to you, I am an ambassador for a company called Kaylee Concepts, and they make a plush educational tech toy called Blueby Pals. B-L-U-E-B-E-E, so Blueby Pals. And those are a Bluetooth-enabled plush bear and zebra and all sorts of different animals that talks. So you can take an app that you have or a YouTube video, a music video, alphabet song, and play it through your Blueby Pal, and he talks and moves his mouth, and it's really, really fun. So those are some resources that can help you engage your child. Poonam, these are fantastic tips. This was wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us about really understanding our children more, learning what we can do to help them and understanding the different ways that they can learn and strengthening that. So thank you again. No problem. Thank you for having me. Of course. And to our listeners, please share your questions with us on Baby Chick's Facebook page where we'll be posting today's episode and answering your questions in the comments. As always, subscribe to Chick Chat, the Baby Chick podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a great day.